This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back oh happy thursday welcome to the times red box politics podcast i'm patrick mcguire in for matt Chorley. this is my penultimate show of the week matt will be back on monday i know i say this every time but it really was a cracker today for a big thing at 11 o'clock, we were speaking to a range of Lib Dem experts. Don't say we don't give you excitement on this podcast about what the party's 2023 holds. But first, it's probably my favourite columnist panel of the week. Indy Knight and James Marriott are with you now with Knight at the Marriott. The columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, always fun when these two are around. India Knight joins me now. Morning, India. Morning, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. It's the fifth, we can still say. And James Marriott. Hello, James. Good morning. I'm also saying Happy New Year. Yeah, I think it's acceptable till the 12th day of Christmas, which is tomorrow, um, at which point everybody should take their their decorations down and, and, you know, abandon any pretense that we have anything to be uh, feeling festive about. Uh, How are you both, India? How are you? I'm very well. I'm bummed out about taking everything down because I think... Given that January lasts about eight months and February lasts about <laughs> 12, it seems a stupid time of year to be taking all the festivity and jollity down when we most need it. But anyway, it needs to be done, I guess, because I'm quite superstitious, so I don't want to leave it up. Festivity and jollity, India. We've got a Keir Starmer speech to talk about. What I more could you on? There is that. <laughs> uh, uh, James, how are you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm... I have taken the step of never having had any Christmas decorations in the first place. Oh, so I've never done and therefore nothing to be depressed about. Me too, me too, actually. Obviously, we've got substantial issues to discuss, but um, as long as I've... James, like 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 me, you're a, a northern boy um, in London, even if our voices increasingly don't betray that fact. Okay. Um, I've never, in any of the flats I've lived in, any of the flat shares I've lived in, uh, had a uh, had a Christmas tree or tinsel or oh anything like God. it. James, are you the same? Somebody- Somebody said to me, a friend said to me, and this for me is very true. He said, Christmas happens in the provinces. It doesn't happen in London. London isn't a Christmassy place. And for me, Christmas is always something that happens in Newcastle upon Tyne. And I just can't quite get my head around the idea that it might happen in London, uh, which I probably should now have lived here for God, what, six years? Probably should be getting my head around that. But it's not quite, the realisation isn't quite there yet. But is this because the Christmas, the Christmas stuff is at your parents? And you're just holding out for that when you go home for Christmas. Yeah. Basically, like, yeah. We'll go home. What are we going to do? You know, have a few days of Christmas decorations, my flatmates, before you'll leave the place for Christmas. 
we've got a moth infestation too, and I think we're a bit worried the moths <laughs> might want to do a Christmas tree if we got it. So, um, yeah. James Marriott's moth, moth infestation. infestation. God. <laughs> that's Which a... I've whinged about at great length in the newspaper. I should shut up about it, actually. <laughs> Going on and on about my moth infestation. God, yeah. Well, you, you're, you know, some of us would kill to, uh, to, to hear more about James Marriott's moth <laughs> infestation. That should be a subscriber perk. Anyway, uh, let's... Uh, I, mean, I, will let... happily, I will happily go on about it if anyone does want to hear about it. That's, uh, you, heard it no. you heard it here first. I hope the commentator is listening because uh, you've got a next, week pit, next week's pitch from James Marriott already. Right, uh, that's quite enough about moths and Christmas trees. Um, let's talk about uh, something even more exciting. The leak from Prince Harry's new memoir being reported today. Accusations that Prince William attacked him during a row over his relationship um, with... Uh, Megan the Duchess of Sussex. Harry writes that William grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace and knocked me to the floor, leaving him with visible marks on his back. And the book seemingly claims William told Harry to wear the infamous um, Nazi uniform. Um, India, what do you think of all of this? Because, you know, the substance aside, um, I think a lot of listeners will think, you know, it's quite sad to see um, very intimate moments between two brothers aired so publicly like this yeah it's really sad and the saddest thing about it is you don't it's very hard to imagine how it ends you know having embarked on this course I I kind of understand the desire to embark on the course because he clearly feels so hard done by and he clearly feels that only a particular narrative is being heard and that's not the narrative that he is part of really I understand the desire to speak out up to a point, but I think, and also I'm quite surprised by the fact that the little extract I read this morning about the um, argument with William is quite, I wasn't planning on reading the book, but it's quite, the ghost is obviously quite good. It's Mm. it's the ghostwriter. It's compellingly told and it's punchy and it has, it sounds truthful. You know, the detail is that he hurt his back when he, when William shoved him and he slipped and smashed the, um, the dog bowl, you know, that kind of detail. I don't know. I don't know. I, I I want to read it. I don't necessarily feel that anything is achieved by it being made public. It's interesting. I've got a friend who's a bookseller. And just before Christmas, they sent out an email to their mailing list saying um, you can pre-order a copy of this book and we'll have it ready for you when it comes out, which I think is next Tuesday or Thursday. And <clears throat> she said to me that she had loads of emails of complaints saying, how dare you stop this book? Oh, wow. And then also lots of emails saying, yes, please, I'll have one. <laughs> the, email, the emails of complaint from people who wouldn't normally, it's, you know, it's a small independent bookshop. It has a very kind of good relationship with its um, customers. And I was really interested that those customers who wouldn't normally feel moved to express an opinion about what is or isn't coming into stock would say, would, you know, would declare themselves really disappointed. James, I, I, I'd love to hear your view on something India um, said there, given your, uh, you know, your expertise um, in the literary world, former deputy book editor of the Times, no less. And what do you think about the sort of literary, um, literary credentials of this book from what you've read so far? Do you agree that it's clearly yeah. very well ghosted, compellingly told? Clearly, um, the characters are very vividly realised. I'm reading some of the dialogue um, overnight, um, you know, there's a re- there, it does it does undeniably have a real energy and uh, and verisimilitude about it, doesn't it? Yeah, do you know what? I completely agree with India. And I'd actually seen people saying that the ghostwriter is a good ghostwriter, and we should expect it to read well. And I thought the detail India picked up about the dog bowl 
was really kind of almost, I don't know, something you'd find in a novel, that little kind of detail that suddenly brings a situation to life, makes you believe in it. I mean, whether or not we do think it's true, it's those kind of details that really, you know, make this seem like it actually happened. It's not, you know, some kind of celebrity memoirs are just awful, you know, trudges through, I felt this way, I felt that way, just like someone ranting at their therapist. But this was, you know, a scene that was constructed. It was quite novelistic. Yeah, I was sort of, I was kind of, I was struck by how well written it was. The other thing that really jumped out at me, which maybe this is stupid, but something that hadn't quite got ra- got my head around about Prince Harry is how much he really does resent being the spare, not the heir, which is obviously the title of the book. But the fact that this argument that caused them to have a physical fight was due to Harry whinging to, or rather, sorry, complaining, uh, expressing his uh, discontent to Prince William about how Prince William didn't understand what it was like to be the spare, the throne, not the heir. And it made me think that maybe this kind of feeling of, you know, relegation, second place, not the centre of attention is more important to what's going on for Prince Harry than I'd understood. I loved, by the way, James, your sliding scale of uh, self-impartiality, uh, compliant, <laughs> you know, whinging, complaining, expressing his discontent. Uh, there you go. Who needs Ofcom when you, like when you regulate yourself uh, so effectively? Um, uh, just just, just a, a final thought on this from you, India. If you were Prince William, um, there's, and there's a thought... Um, would you respond to this? Is there anything he can do other than maintain a dignified silence? Because mm. it's one thing think... not responding to sort of allegations in a Netflix documentary about the firm, but when they're specific allegations of sort of physical violence or fisticuffs, it's harder to maintain um, that vow of silence, isn't it? What do you think? Yes, um, I think it's very difficult for him, actually, because, you know, silence <clears throat> is of itself eloquent. You know, you're clearly you're, you're, by refusing to engage with any of this, whether it's the Netflix stuff or now the book, you are suggesting by saying nothing that either it's beneath you or it's not true or it's not interesting. And, you know, can we all move on? I think I think this might become problematic if the book, if the rest of the book. I mean, I note that the reporter who got an advanced copy picked this fight and this dog bowl um, out as the kind of highlight. So, you know, if that's the highlight, you know, there's obviously not going to be much in it. Um, if it's a selected highlight, I mean, as I say, I'm quite keen to read it. Um, I think not saying anything, I think for William to be portrayed as not a kind of nice, smiley, balding man with charming children and a charming wife in the book, I think if that takes root, the idea that he's this kind of angry person who needs to physically lash out in order to emphasise how he's feeling. I mean, already that's kind of quite a weird thing in an adult man. Um, I think if that if that idea of him takes hold with readers of the book, he probably should say something. But of course, if he does say something, Harry will say something back and on and on and on it goes. So as I was saying at the beginning, I don't understand how it ends. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, the, the late Queen, um, when confronted with sort of allegations in the Oprah interview, said recollections may vary, but you get the sense it might require a more substantial uh, response from Prince William, should he wish uh, to give one to these obviously contested uh, and one-sided allegations thus far. Um, James, let's talk about your column today, talking about sort of uh, clashing cultures and, uh, you know, perhaps... Uh, how we find America incomprehensible sometimes on this side of the Atlantic. Um, You made the argument this morning that young English speakers uh, are adopting a progressivism which is incomprehensible uh, to Europe, that, you know, the English-speaking world is becoming more American and American is becoming less European and basically never the twain shall meet culturally. Yeah, 
it's something I find really interesting. I mean, the kind of culture wars, as we call them, is a kind of recurring interest of mine. And something I've been reading a bit about, and then I thought, well, I'll have to go and, you know, talk to some people about it, is the way that um, the kind of Anglo-American culture that we have, where we're always arguing about trans rights and all these kind of cultural battles, free speech, universities. I was really interested in the extent to which this exists in Europe as well. And I was talking to various kind of Times foreign correspondents, and they were saying, a lot of the stuff that we now spend all our time talking about is really kind of unknown in Europe. So, you know, there's no German word for woke. Um, these kind of campus battles that we obsess over are basically unknown in Germany. You know, trans rights is just not a thing. These fights that tear us apart in the UK and America are just not a thing in Europe. And what a lot of the people I was speaking to were saying was that, you know, we've often thought of ourselves quite close to Europe culturally. We have a lot in common, a lot to talk about, but increasingly, in continental Europe, in France, Spain, Italy, Germany, they're kind of looking on at our sort of cultural obsession with a kind of with a kind of bafflement. And there's a sort of growing cultural rift between the English speaking world and Europe. Uh, to the extent that someone I was talking to was saying, you know, he'd always kind of thought he'd have a bit of a career, you know, an um, European intellectual always saying he thought he'd have a career in the English speaking world. And he's saying that's now not possible because the cultures are so different, it's hard for a European to talk in the English-speaking world because all our assumptions are just so different. India, you've spent a life sort of betwixt and between Europe and the, the English-speaking world. Do you, do, you, do, you think this is, uh, do you think this is fair? Do you think we're sort yeah, of moving I really apart do. culturally? I think this is, I think, I mean, I always love James Scotland, but I think this is a particularly good one. I think it should be read by everybody and put outside the paywall. Um, the, the, the thing about all of this, I mean, it's really strange, isn't it? I remember when the film Greece came out, I was, I don't know, 12? 11, 12, 13, something like that. And we happened to be in Washington that summer on our way to, I don't know where, anyway, we went to an, a huge American cinema with giant popcorn and giant milkshakes and we watched Grease and it was so cool. And my generation grew up revering that kind of already retro, obviously it's set in the 1950s, but that kind of high schooly, friendly, a bit Californian version of America and have watched what America has been doing since with kind of dismay, really. I don't love the idea of, I'm not in love with America in that way anymore and haven't been for some time. And of course, Donald Trump was the final nail in that particular coffin. But I think also the thing, there were two things that really differentiate us from America, I think. One is that extreme religiosity, not, 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 not in a kind of Church of England or Catholic way, but in a kind of really Baroque and bizarre way. And mm. it's really extreme and it's constant. And that's very strange. And we do not have that in common. And I think that the relig religiosity or the wanting to get away from the rel religiosity uh, informs a lot of what happens. The second thing is that America enslaved people until very, very recently. Se there was segregation in the 1960s. You couldn't travel on the same bus. You know, our, um, all and, and all of those things, of course, are worth, not even worth, need, need unpacking by Americans in America because that is their history. Our um, discourse about race in the UK comes from a completely different place. It comes from colonization. It's much more layered. It's much more subtle. Um, I think it's something like 90% of um, inmates in, our, in American prisons are black. In the UK, people whose families came from some of those colonies tend to do very well at school. So not, not all colonies, but some. So, it, you know, it's absurd to, 
to, to adopt the American discourse and go, oh, yes, everything is right and everything applies to us, because it clearly, clearly doesn't. It comes from a completely different place. And it kind of really muddies the water to kind of wholeheartedly, and in my view, slightly sort of naffly, align yourself with the, with things which that have very, very little relevant to life in the UK, which is not without its difficulties and not without topics that need proper examining, but the things don't come from the same place. Indeed, and that's much the argument James uh, Marriott is uh, is making uh, in his uh, in his column today. Right, we're going to be talking pubs next. Is the traditional pub on its way out? Data has shown that pubs are closing at a rate of more than one a day. And landlords are getting creative to encourage punters through the door. If you live in a major city, you may have noticed a bevy, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, of active leisure venues uh, springing up. At Put Shack, you can play mini golf while drinking with friends. At Bounce, it's ping pong for groups of two to 500. And at Flight Club, you can play darts bolstered with computer tracking technology. While Nick Porter is the head of retail brand account management for the property development company Landsec, he joins me now. Morning, Nick. Morning, Patrick. Uh, have Landsec then, your your firm, seen much demand for uh, these sorts of experience-led watering holes as opposed to traditional venues like pubs and bars? Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's exciting development that we're kind of observing. I think um, post-pandemic, people are looking for things that are more exper- experiential. And I think also with the increase in online penetration, essentially they'll stay at home and entertain themselves unless something is really worth going to visit. So we feel the places that will flourish will be those that provide an experience or a convenience that can't be done at home online. And, and is this the end of the pub as we know it, Nick? Um, that's, that's not really for, for me to say, I don't think so. I just think in the spaces that, that we have, which tend to be the big regional shopping centres, um, we're seeing a lot of interest um, in these in these um, experiential leisure concepts. I think they will still... You know, the pub is close to all of us um, and I think probably puts the UK on the global cultural map. So we, we hope they will all, all, all survive. Um, and um, and yeah, no, I, I hope that's that's not what happens. Well, James Murray at India Night uh, still with me. Uh, James, are you into your experiential le- leisure complexes uh, or do you prefer an old fashioned pub? No music, no Sky Sports, uh, no uh, no jukebox, just uh, a nice flat pint of uh whatever they've got on on cast no way give give me experiences my main problem with pubs is that i tend to get bored in them and i sometimes think you know everyone's sitting around on hard wooden benches you know talking it's not enough for me and i get i get a bit fidgety i I think the other important thing about you know these kind of experience things is that pubs have always had games played in them you know if you look Mm. at any kind of medieval tavern you know it's dice and it's you know whatever it's bowls all kinds of things and the really important thing that pubs do for communities is they like you know they bring people together everybody is a place where everyone goes to interact you meet your neighbors you get talking to them and i think those experiences restore a kind of you know social aspect to the pub that can just get lost if you go along you know with your group of friends and you'll sit on a hard wooden bench and have a sort of desultory conversation and go home. I think, yeah, absolutely in the tradition of what pubs are about. Well, James, having uh, spent some time with you sitting on hard wooden benches, I now feel <laughs> affronted and offended. <laughs> India, uh, would would you, uh, would you, if James invited you to go to, I don't know, Bounce or Put Shack or Flight Club uh, to uh, for a night out, would you... Uh, would you join him for some activities or are you a traditional pub no, goer? No, I'm afraid I would not. I would not join him. Um, I like I like proper old boozers with old men and dominoes and cribbage. As my local pub has cribbage on Wednesday nights. Um, I like sitting on a hardwood bench, 
preferably by a fire, preferably in a pub that allows dogs. I don't drink anymore. So I do just sort of sit there and play backgammon while sipping my not very nice non-alcoholic drink. But no, I think pubs are pubs. I think the goodness of pubs is entirely to do with their sort of lack of modernity. Mm. Well, that was James Marriott and Indian Knight. And we also heard from Nick Porter from Landsec on pubs, Prince Harry and Woke. What more could you want? Remember, you can read India and James in the Times and Sunday Times every week. Just pick up a copy of the paper or head to the Times website to get yourself a digital subscription. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, every day this week we've been examining the political fortunes of every major UK party. On Tuesday it was the Conservatives, one of the most successful election-winning machines in the Western world. Yesterday it was Labour's turn and we had a fascinating discussion with the new Labour grandee and former Cabinet Minister Peter Mandelson. Today the Liberal Democrats... It's their turn. They were once a serious force to be reckoned with in British politics. 62 Lib Dem MPs were elected in 2005, the highest number for the party and its predecessors since 1923. In 2010, there were 57 Lib Dem MPs and they got their biggest shot in power for nearly a century. They joined a coalition with the Conservatives to oust a previous decade of Labour hegemony. Today, though, there are just 14 MPs for Lib Dems in Westminster, but a spate of recent by-election wins means things could be looking up for Britain's former third party. Well, I'm joined today to run the rule over their chances in 2023 and beyond by the Liberal Democrat Deputy Leader Daisy Cooper. Good morning, Daisy. Morning. As well as the YouGov pollster Tanya Abraham. Morning, Tanya. Morning. And journalist Nick Tyrone. Morning, Nick. Morning. Tanya, let's start with you. Uh, The Liberal Democrats have had, a, as I just said, a spate of by-election successes. It's something historically... Uh, They and the Liberal Party before them did very well. Nationally, however, how are they faring in uh, in YouGov's weekly polls of voting intention for the Times? 
At the moment, we're seeing that Lib Dems are polling on around kind of eight to 10 percent. Um, that's a, a distant third in the polls uh, after Labour, who are on around kind of 48, 50 percent and Conservatives who are on around 24 percent. Whilst they are a distant third, they're not far off or can be on par with um, the Reform Party, who are kind of around the same level. So it's not looking great for the Lib Dems at the moment. Um, and we can see that the, the gap between Labour and Conservatives is way far ahead um, between them and Lib Dems. Uh, Ed Davies, Sir Ed Davies, Liberal Democrat leader, how does he fare in terms of name recognition and favourability? Do, do many people know who he is and do the people who know who he is like him? Well, what we can see is, like you said, name recognition plays an important role in terms of uh, public opinion, favourability, what people think of the party. Um, at the moment, we're seeing that Ed Davey doesn't kind of have the, the name recognition that you might want for a party leader. Um, the majority, around kind of 60% or so, don't really know, um, have an opinion about him, whereas um, around, you know, 15% think of him as favourable, 30% think of him as unfavourable. If we look at the kind of overall party level of Liberal Democrats as a whole, we can see that um, around 50% think of them unfavourably, 30% favourably. So there is a difference between um, party and le leader. Um, but generally speaking, they're still in the negative ratings, but not as bad when we look at, for example, the Conservatives as a brand who are doing really badly at the moment. Um, but there is a difference between Rishi Sunak, who as a prime minister and an individual is doing better than the, than the party he leads. And an interesting thing, I'm going to bring Daisy Cooper in in just a second, but an interesting thing about these polling numbers, uh, Tanya, is that despite the Conservatives tanking uh, in the past couple of months. It's not with the Lib Dems who've, who've picked up support, is it? Yeah, definitely. We've seen over the past few months that Labour have really kind of taken um, advantage of the um, instability within the Conservatives and public opinion towards the Conservatives and have really raced ahead in the polls. Um, what we also know is that when it comes to um, the Liberal Democrat voters, those who voted in 2019, around half would say that if there was an election tomorrow, um, they would vote for the Liberal Democrats. But of course, that leaves the remaining half who would vote for a different party or are unsure. So Liberal Democrats haven't really taken advantage of um, what is happening in the governing party at the moment, whereas we're seeing Labour is uh, benefiting from that. What do you say to that, Daisy Cooper? You're not taking advantage... Uh, the polls say of uh, Tory chaos. Is that is that a fair assessment, or are we overlooking the fact that voters vote tactically? They know where you can win, and in those parts of the country, you're doing rather well. Yeah, I would say the latter. I mean, the fact is that under the first past the post electoral system, uh, the Liberal Democrats have to uh, target our resources in areas where we know we have the best chance of beating the Conservatives. Um, and the national polls don't necessarily uh, reflect that. Uh, what I would say is there have been other polls that have um, asked a series of different questions that reflect that the large swing away from the Conservatives is largely an anti-Conservative vote. And people actually are more open-minded about who they might vote for uh, to beat the Conservative. And that bodes well uh, for us in a number of our blue wall areas where the Liberal Democrats are the key challengers and we're hoping to beat the Tories. Uh, what I would also say is if you look at uh, real elections and you look at real results, uh, the fact is that you know, we've had three stunning by-election wins um, over the last 18 months. You know, we've taken control of three local councils in the local elections in May and we've made really 
great steps forward in terms of winning more council seats in the blue wall areas where we want to challenge the Conservatives at the next election. So I would say that there's a lot more nuance, uh, a lot more detail um, to the analysis that some others might uh, might give. Well, by-elections are one thing, or in your case, last year, three things. But isn't this always a problem for the Liberal Democrats that within the lifetime of Parliament, you're very effective at exploiting uh, local discontent or periods of national discontent with uh, unpopular governments, be that Labour over Iraq or the Conservatives over Partygate or Brexit. You can chuck the kitchen sink at, uh, at any given seat, but then when a general election comes, it's much trickier uh, to, um, to, to pursue, that sort of, uh, pursue, that, pursue that sort of strategy. Is that not a risk that happens to you again in 2024, that you uh, find that you can't replicate your local success, you know, saying one thing in one seat and saying another thing in another seat? Um, and, you know, it's harder to, to cut through nationally. Well, time will tell. Um, but the fact is that you know, we've been very open and transparent about what our strategy is. You know, we know that we are the key challengers in a number of seats, uh, not the key challengers to the Conservatives. And we will be focusing on those areas and channeling our resources. So you know, we were incredibly proud of the by-election wins that we had, including in East Devon, where we had, you know, we overturned the largest majority in a by-election ever. If you look at, for example, Sarah Olney in her seat in South London, that was a seat that we won in a by-election. And she then sort of lost her seat but won it back and so um, you know we do have form in terms of either holding or winning back at those kind of seats so as I say we'll be targeting in key areas and we're really hopeful that we can make gains uh, at the next election we won't take it for granted but we are uh, hopeful that we can. Let me put a text from a listener uh, to you Daisy Cooper. Uh, Adrian Jackson in Darlington has just texted in to say any party that decides it wants to cancel the results of the biggest ever democratic exercise in the country's history will forever be in the electoral wilderness and deservedly so. He's of course referring to uh, not just the Liberal Democrats advocacy for a second referendum but your policy in 2019 which was to uh, revoke uh, Article 50 uh, without uh, a second referendum at all. So what, what what do you say to that? What do you say to former Brexit voters uh, or indeed Remainers who were uneasy about uh, the Lib Dems' advocacy for overturning that result? What do you say to them? What does the party have to say uh, these days to the sort of people who might have one day, once upon a time, voted for you but then were turned off over Brexit? I guess the first thing I would say is that we've seen the enormous damage that the division um, of the last few years has caused uh, to the country. It's called division in, in families. It's called division in politics. I think our public debate has become incredibly fractious. And, and to be to be blunt, um, I don't think we as a party want to revisit that division of the past. I think we need to put some of that behind us. But what I would say is I think when you ask people now um, what they think of the Conservatives Brexit deal, I think there's a huge amount of consensus that it's simply not working. You know, we know that it isn't working for farmers and the trade deals that the government have struck have actually been um, have had had a negative impact on them. We know that small businesses around the country have seen their sort of supply chains dry up. Some of them have moved to other countries. They're absolutely wrapped up in red tape and bureaucracy. And so I think there is a, a very broad consensus now about the future, which is that this deal isn't working. And that's why the Liberal Democrats, you know, in fact, I think are the only party that have set out a plan to deal with this. We've got a four stage plan as to how we want to, first of all, look at this deal and try and make it better so it works better for Britain. We want to look to see if there are any sort of EU 
uh, EU-wide programmes that we could rejoin that would be beneficial for for the UK, whether that's in science or in education or, or in research. We want to try and improve trade deals with other countries around the world because the deals that the Conservatives have struck really aren't very good, to be, uh, to, to, be, to be blunt. And then the fourth step, at some point in the future, when the timing is right, um, then you know, hopefully we might be able to, to rejoin the single market. So we set out a plan for the future. We don't want to revisit the divisions of the past, but our starting point is that this Conservative Brexit deal isn't working for Britain, and we've got to look to the future in terms of how we improve that relationship. Uh, Daisy Cooper, stay with us. I'm just about to uh, go to Nick Tyrone, uh, the uh, the journalist. Uh, Nick, uh, you've been watching uh, the Liberal Democrats for some years now. Um, how do you think their current performance compares to, say, 2005, uh, 2010? Obviously, the, the numbers are one thing, but how has the party, say, changed? And do you think they're in ruder health than they once were? Uh, no, I don't think they're in ruder health. I think the problem really comes down to, if you look at 2005, 2010, uh, really the Lib Dems had gained a huge amount of support from people who had once supported Labour, uh, and, but had, had just fallen out, basically, had thought that New Labour had gone too uh, authoritarian or too right-wing, however you want to put it, and they had gained a lot of left-wing votes. Now, uh, in 2010, obviously, after the election, they went into coalition with the Tories, and they lost a lot of that vote. Uh, and there's no real evidence to suggest that they have regained it, at least in terms of what they could perform in a general election. I'd say in terms of a general election for the Lib Dems, I'd say the best case scenario for them is if, if the Tories really do poll at what they're polling right now. So if they do sort of get less than 30% in a general election, it wouldn't be difficult to see the Lib Dems gaining seats regardless, because you'd see, have a similar situation to 97, where they went from 20 seats to 46. And really, they did that mostly by standing still while the Tory, you know, the Tory vote collapsed. So I could see that happening for them. Um, but by the same token, uh, as already mentioned, they're not polling particularly well nationally. I mean, 8%, if they, that's what they get. <clears throat> It's difficult to see them doing, uh, gaining seats at all, even if the Tory vote does go below 30%. And I particularly think they have to worry about, I mean, if the Labour vote is like 50%, which I doubt it will be, but if it was, you're sort of seeing a, a wave. And I think the idea that, you know, I, I agree with Daisy that people are sort of, there's a lot of resentment towards the Tories. And we could see a huge anti-Tory vote at the next general election. The problem is it could entirely accrue to Labour because people could just say, just one shot of the Tories, I'm going to vote Labour because, because that's the most decisive thing I can do. And so I think they really need to worry about that, and particularly given that Labour could go into that election thinking, you know what, we should probably target some of these Lib Dem seats because the worst thing that could, one of the worst things that could happen to us is we end up in a, a hung parliament situation, biggest party, and the only real option is to try and have some sort of deal with the Lib Dems, and God, they could want proportional representation, all these things that we desperately don't want, but would be difficult for us to reject because a lot of our own support likes that sort of stuff. So if they're on 50%, I wouldn't really be surprised if they might target Lib Dem seats. Yes, it's it's very interesting. I think, you know, the Labour Party would say to that, well, you know, we, uh, we're we not in direct competition. There are a few seats where they are in direct competition. So that, that would be very interesting indeed. Um, I want to pick up on something you said um, just there, Nick, about sort of what drives Lib Dem support in different eras. In, you know, the noughties, it was very much discontent with Labour and perhaps Labour's foreign policy. Um, George Osborne, I've just dug this uh, old lineup from a George Osborne interview in 2015, uh, when he was very much the cat that got the cream after that unexpected election win. And uh, he was asked, um, 
by uh, the New Statesman's editor, Jason Cowley. One of your old friends, the Liberal Democrats, you drew them into coalition, then systematically destroyed them. I always thought this was a very perceptive quote from Osborne. He said, in the end, the Liberal Democrats, all things to all people approach, caught up with them, and then they were no things to no people. That potpourri of centre-right Liberals, Iraq War rebels, Celtic fringe Methodists and local populists turned out to be not very coherent. Do you think that's a problem the Lib Dems still have now, or... Do you think, you know, given we've heard from Daisy about the blue wall, Lib Dem support is very much now concentrated, or Lib Dem targets are concentrated in London in the southeast, commuter belt seats. Do you think uh, their electoral targeting now, their their sort of electoral base is more coherent than that? Or do you think that sort of critique that the Liberal Democrats are a party that are very good at opposing things, not making a positive case for liberalism, uh, still applies under Ed Davey? I think um, the strategy is probably more solid. It's really obvious what they're doing. However, the all things to all people, no things to no people thing, I think probably applies more than ever. Um, if you look at the, some of the by-election victories, I mean, a, a, a nimbyism is a big, a big thing, uh, which the Lib Dems oppose at national level, but, um, but have, have just openly run on, particularly in some of the by-elections. Um, and I think that's, you know, I can understand it. It's an understandable strategy short-term strategy i just think long term and then particularly going into well a the next election it's i think it's going to be difficult for them for that reason uh for people to have a positive reason to vote for the lib dems but then actually whoever wins the next election i think lib dems have huge existential issues what do they do that let's say there's a labor government what do they do then do they then revert to becoming the sort of anti-brexit party it doesn't really sound like it from what like a lot of leading lights in the party are saying uh and i can understand that because actually that support is widespread but probably quite thinned out so under first past the post tricky for them do they keep trying to be the sort of none of the above party i mean i I guess so do they do they revert back to where they were 2005 do they sort of try to run to the left of labor in certain respects and uh, that could get really messy quite frankly particularly if they don't do all that well or it's a disappointing election for them no things to no people nimbies uh daisy cooper uh what do you make of that what's the positive case the liberal democrats are making rather than not being the conservatives I think if you look at our record over the last year, we've been both leading and winning the battle of ideas. You know, we were the very first party to set out a fair deal when it came to energy bills. We were the first party to call for a windfall tax on the big oil and gas companies because we could see how outrageous it was that they were making billions of pounds in profits whilst ordinary folk couldn't afford to put their heating on. You know, last summer, we were the very first party to call for the price hike uh, to be scrapped altogether. That was a really bold move uh, by party leader Ed Davis and received plaudits from across the political spectrum for having the courage and the ambition to say so. And that was then followed uh, by Labour and then by the Conservatives. So in both cases, you know, we've been leading and winning the battle of ideas on the cost of living crisis. And again, on the NHS crisis, you know, this week, Rishi Sunak clearly just doesn't get it. He clearly has no idea Um, how uh, big an issue this NHS crisis is. And again, we're the party that have been putting forward a plan on how to tackle this issue, uh, whilst he seems to really not have any idea at all as to what to do. Um, And as for the the NIMBY claim, I mean, this is what what conservatives throw at us, and there's a reason why they do, it's because they're, they're losing elections to us. The fact is that time and time again, we've highlighted the fact that the Conservatives' planning system is heavily weighted in favour of developers. Developers are the ones that can buy the land, they determine 
um, you know, what houses they want to build. Uh, local councils have almost no resource, resources to fight back and communities have no say at all. Um, and I'm not going to apologise for the fact at all that I believe and the Liberal Democrats believe that the planning system is broken. It's a developer led system. We want to have a community led planning system so that when there are new houses and we recognize there have to be new houses we want them to come with resources we want them to come with gp surgeries and new schools and nice parks and for those homes to be warm i mean that's not too much to ask for so when those accusations are leveled at us i I refute them entirely i think we are winning the battle of ideas and because we're becoming a campaigning force we knock on doors we listen to people we've been first out of the traps on almost every single issue over the last 18 months putting forward people's concerns in parliament and that's what we'll keep continuing to do and what about a deal with labor at the next election is that something you'd be well up for or do voters know where you can win and and don't need their hands held or uh, election ballot papers uh, edited for them? You know, I've been asked this question so many times. Uh, There are no deals. uh, There are going to be no deals. We don't need any packs and we wouldn't want to do them because I think they are a form of uh, taking voters for granted. Um, There are areas where we will be running candidates in every seat, um, but we'll be targeting our resources in areas where we think we're the key challengers and where we can win seats off the Conservatives. Uh, Just a final word from Tanya Abraham, uh, YouGov pollster. Um, We don't have to wait for a general election uh, to see how the Lib Dems are doing in the country. Uh, What about uh, the local elections coming up this May. Where are the Lib Dems likeliest to succeed, do you think? Well, local elections and um, even European elections, they tend to work um, better for kind of smaller parties. And as we've kind of just discussed, Liberal Democrats have um, the ability and the um, advantage in terms of their local networks and so on, um, really campaigning and um getting the local people involved and door knocking and so on. So I think those um, advantages, those um, areas and skills is where they really come into play. Um, But like I said, and like has been discussed, um, issues like the cost of living and the economy and other issues which we know are going to be important drivers um, for for voting and for the election will be what needs to be addressed um, and when it comes to people marking their vote in the ballot box. Well, Tanya Abraham from YouGov, uh, journalist Nick Tyrone and the Liberal Democrat leader, uh, deputy leader, not the leader just yet, Daisy, uh, Liberal Democrat deputy leader, Daisy Cooper. Thanks very much for joining us to talk through what 2023 has in store for the Liberal Democrats. But now let's cast our minds back a little. What can today's third party learn from past examples? Well, who better talk to about this than John Campbell, the historian, biographer and author of A Well-Rounded Life, the very best biography of Roy Jenkins. He's here to discuss the origins of the Liberal Democrats and what lessons they may be able to learn uh, from the likes of Jenkins and previous previous big cheeses in the party and its predecessors. Uh, Good morning, John. Hello, good morning. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Remind us then about uh, how the Liberal Democrats came about, because obviously they're a successful organisation to the Liberals of Asquith and, and Lloyd George and Jeremy Thorpe, but they're not the they're not the same party, are they? Well, no. Although they've they've absorbed the, I mean, the Lib Dems are a merger between the old Liberal Party and the SDP, which was the brave attempt by Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, and others to break away from the Labour Party, which then uh, that was going very far to the left. 
and they tried to create a new center party. They realized they couldn't do it in competition with the liberals. So they, um, with a lot of uh, angst on both sides, but eventually they uh, merged with the liberals and joined the, and created the liberal the Liberal Democrats in 1989 under the leadership of Paddy Ashdown. And did the merger, as it were, um, did the merger give the Liberal Democrats a, has it given them a broader electoral base or are the, are the Liberal Democrats sort of, electorally speaking at least, where they perform well on the map, are they sort of uh, occupying the same heartlands as uh, the old Liberals as opposed to the uh, the sort of seats the SDP could win? I think probably they have ended up being much the same as the old Liberals. I think the intention was to bring over more of the um, centre-right of the Labour Party. Um, and they actually, at the beginning, they had big names like Jenkins and Shirley Williams and David Owen, which gave them a sort of weight which the Liberals did not have. With the passing of that generation, the Liberal Dems have become pretty much, I think, the same as the old Liberal Party. They've got a better organisation. They're more professional, probably, than, than they were in the days of, you know, Joe Grimmond and Jeremy Thorpe. But but I think they have in, they've got the same problem that they're still they still lack a clear identity, both ideologically, both in policy terms and also in in in. Um, uh, um, Sorry, I've lost my thread. I mean, they do lack a sort of clear... Tri they don't have the sort of vested interests mm. on their support. that They are not representing business on the one hand or Labour on the other. And in this two-party system, they are always squeezed like that, unless their only chance when they've done relatively well is when there is a big gap in the middle, when... Um, the Tories have seen to have gone too far to the right and Labour's gone too far to the left, then there is a gap in the middle for them to come through. But that, you know, if that is not happening, then they lack the identity. I mean, Blair and Ashdown had a sort of alliance up to the election, but um, Blair did too well, didn't need Ashdown after the election. New Labour pretty much spiked um, the Lib Dems guns because New Labour was very much everything that the STP had stood for. And I think if, you know, there was a possibility with Jeremy Corbyn that the Lib Dems had a, had, had a gap there to fill. But if Starmer has come back towards the centre, it makes it very hard for the Liberal Lib Dems to, to create that clear identity. They can have good ideas they can be a source of, 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 of suggestions, but they're not going very easily. It's difficult to see how that they have that clear identity that makes people think they are the answer to the nation's problem. You mentioned Joe Grimmond, you mentioned Jeremy Thorpe, uh, Paddy Ashdown, uh, obviously Roy Jenkins, um, a big personality in the in the SDP um, and uh, later Liberal Democrats, as your excellent biography um, uh, tells very well. Uh, Charles Kennedy, another big personality. To, to what extent are the Liberal Democrats' fortunes dependent on the need for a charismatic performer or performers at the forefront? And do you think Ed Davey, Sir Ed Davey, uh, is, uh, you know, fits into this lineage or is he, uh, is he slightly more uh, subdued than those, uh, than those esteemed predecessors of his? 
Yes, I mean, I think in modern politics, you know, it's as much about personality as policy, unfortunately, and big personality. I mean, this is why we got Johnson. Um, this, you know, personality is what counts to a great extent. This is the criticism of Starmer as well, but he's not really grabbing attention because people think he's, you know, he's, think he's decent but dull. Um, Ed Davey is rather similar. I think he's a very good, capable chap. He's had um, ministerial experience in the coalition, but he he does come across as fairly dull and safe, and he's got the disadvantage that whereas Starmer is at least leader of the opposition and gets a lot of attention, the Lib Dems always struggle to get in, get anything reported. There are so few of them, they do not get onto all the, you know, the Today programme or the other programmes as as regularly as, as um, the official opposition. They don't have enough seats and enough weight, enough people really, to make the impact they don't get reported they can make as many good speeches as they like but but you know they the, the uh, i mean the system is against them and, and just just a big to... personality to break through that and mm. i'm afraid perhaps you know <laughs> david possibly doesn't have that and just uh, just a very brief final question john campbell uh, perhaps in a sentence or so roy jenkins uh, always thought that the great tragedy of British progressivism was that the, the Liberals and Labour Party had, had ended up splitting, uh, that those two currents of progressivism have ended up splitting in the early uh, 20th century. Obviously, there's intermittent talk of cooperation, a deal, a pact between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Obviously, mm-hmm. Jenkins uh, was one of the driving forces behind those abortive efforts in the 1990s. Um, do you think if there is a future uh, where the Liberal Democrats are relevant at the heart of British politics, it will require some formal cooperation with Labour in in, in that regard? I think that is probably true, but Labour, as long as it's doing well and thinks it can win by itself, is not interested. So, I mean, I I think if there is ever going to be a realignment of British politics, it does need the two, and indeed the others, um, you know, the Greens and the Plaid Cymru, and, you know, it needs a sort of anti-conservative coalition to bring in PR to create um, a different system. But as long as the two-party system, well, it certainly serves the Conservatives, and as long as as Labour thinks on the pendulum, they will continue to win every every other time, then Labour has no interest. I mean, Tony Blair was sort of persuaded to go for PR, but the rest of his party, Brown, Straw, and people were, were all against it. Well, that's all we've got time for on another edition of The Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Remember, I'll be here tomorrow, Matt will be back on Monday, and in the meantime, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your pods from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.